0: They didn't wait until they had millions of dollars to take care of people. Mm-hmm. They just reached out to their community and looked for the need that they could help, and and that's who they helped. You know, you
1: got everyone yeah. do their I parts. Mean, everybody right?
0: can do. You know, it, how 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 hard is it? I mean, if we can if we can buy the next person in line Starbucks and pass it forward, right? Uh, how hard is it to. to take that same money and and do something to help somebody with a house or do something to help somebody pay an electric bill.
2: This is The Real Estate Podcast, a show by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. Let's hear from our host, Matt Teifke and Alex Kaufman. Hey everybody, welcome to The Real Estate Podcast. Alex
1: Kaufman here and Matthew Teifke. We had... The CEO of the Williamson County Board of Realtors, Brian Hutchison, come on our show. This was actually a really good episode. We dove into a little bit more about life, politics, uh, the way we view the world. This was one that I really enjoyed. Not a typical podcast, but I had a great time. Brian is a really good guy, and he's going to be doing some big things in the future. I got a little bit of news from him, so stay tuned. Brian Hutchison, CEO the real estate podcast. Hope you guys enjoy.
2: The Real Estate Podcast is sponsored by Doyen Inspections. Doyen is a team of female professional home inspectors that serve the greater Austin area. Whether you are buying a resale, building a new home, or about to list your home for sale, the ladies at Doyen Inspections can inspect your home. They provide a color-coded and thorough inspection report full of images, videos, and explanations. Visit Doyen, that is D-O-Y-E-N-N-E, inspections.com for more information or give them a call at
1: 512-655-9940. Now back to the episode. Welcome to the Real Estate Podcast, Brian. Hey, thanks, back. What are we talking about We're talking today? about anything. So um, we've been doing this for a while okay. and we got the name, the Real Estate Podcast, which is pretty cool.
0: That's, uh, that, man, that's a pretty uh, yeah. awesome,
1: that's like getting realestate.com or yeah, commercial. Yeah, we, we were shocked, yeah. but... It's really easy going. So, uh, you know, real estate's kind of a fundamental belief that Alex and I have in in a way to create financial freedom. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, last episode we were talking about restaurants in Round Rock. We've talked cannabis. We've talked all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, so we appreciate you being here. Cool. And um, ultimately what we would like to do is to uh, kind of go through your background um, as much as you want to, like even from where you grew up to where you are now. I know you've... Uh, from my perspective, you've had an interesting background because you've gone uh, and, and were very successful with business, and now you've taken a little bit different approach. Still yeah. business, but not so much focused on making money as much as possible, I, I believe. Um, so we'd love to hear about your background, and then um, we'll have tons of questions, I'm sure, throughout, but ultimately just easygoing type conversation. Um, I'm glad to
0: have it. So, uh, so like both of you, I mean, real estate matters to me. Real property matters to me, and... That goes back to being a kid, right? Uh, I, I moved 19 times before I graduated high school. Wow. Not counting the couches that I surfed on. <laughs> and because uh, I don't know how many of those there were, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, I have parents that are still married today. Um, it wasn't that it was an unstable home. It was just financially uh, the time and age that I grew up in um, had a lot of turmoil for my parents, and we ended up moving a lot. And that, you know, that always, uh, 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 became an issue in the back of my mind in two ways. It made me really fluid in my life mm-hmm. and made me adjust quickly to change. And, and it also gave me this kind of love for housing that I didn't even know I had when I was 18, 19 years old. Uh, but when you sleep in the back seat of a car, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you miss you, your house. You miss a house. You realize just how important having a pillow is at night.
1: Yeah, were they telling, chasing jobs or what, what was the? Yeah,
0: no. I mean, it was a, it was a product of several different things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think the the best way to say that is my parents did the best they could with the totality of resource available to them, mm-hmm. um, and made some good decisions, made some bad decisions. Uh, we're in some good positions and we're in some bad positions. And it just led to a, a financial firestorm mm-hmm. for them. And, uh, you know, growing up, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, uh, mostly in Texas, although I'm not from Texas originally, um, but mostly, you know, in North Texas, which is a relatively good market, but it struggled as well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, housing inflation, uh, inflationary rates were going through the roof in the early 80s and uh, kind of stabilized in mid 80s. And they were, you know, subject to that. Um, job market was flexible. My dad was a, um, a reverse engineer for CAT scans and MRIs. He he uh, a self-taught guy he learned how to um, take CAT scans or MRIs, disassemble them, reverse engineer them, and teach people how to fix them. Mm. And uh, so as that industry changed and the need for education became stronger, um, he found himself displaced in, wow. in the workplace and had to struggle struggle for a job and just. Kind of plateaued, mm-hmm. and um, so anyway, it created this interesting thing, and I joined the military. and uh, where,
1: where were you born? You said you were so born Texas. in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay,
0: uh, moved to Minnesota. We lived several places up there, and then came here to uh, to Texas, to the little town of Garland, Texas, which isn't so little anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, up in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Nice, yeah.
1: And then you joined the military. I joined the
0: military, and um, uh, you know, the first day I joined the military is earnestly the first day of my life I remember having three meals and having uh two changes of clothes and <laughs> um and I, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek but it really is it's the first time I remember having that yeah it was um it was the first real point of stability in my life and I absolutely loved it uh, five years nine months 22 days um that I served and um uh, um and the, you know, people thank me all the time. They're like, oh, thanks for your service. I'm like, man, thanks for letting me serve. <laughs> yeah. right. I mean, what a great country that we live in where somebody who doesn't have other opportunities
1: mm-hmm.
0: can, uh, can make the choice to go and serve to do that and um, have a lifetime of, of blessings attached to it.
2: Was it, was it stability uh, that was nice or um, new for you and something you craved? Or was it also a sense of structure, too? Or was your childhood structured to a certain extent, even with everything going on?
0: Yeah, childhood wasn't real structured. I, uh, I came in, uh, you know, I was come and go. I, I mean, I got my first job when I was 10 years old, uh, cleaning the engine bays of cars at a paint and body shop um, before they got painted. And, you know, I, I've worked nonstop since then. You know, I, I had the lawnmower company and with a borrowed lawnmower cutting grass and
2: so it has been uh structured to a certain extent then right like or you were disciplined enough to always be there's a difference between discipline and survival and uh, i work for survival um
0: i work to um you know be able to help my family and uh, to be able to eat and have clothes and Play a game of uh, uh, Galaxia, whatever whatever that video game was called. Pac Man, Galactica. Uh, Galactica, Thanks. Yeah, every once in a while at the Mister Jim's Mm -hmm. Um, arcade. Now the the convenience store on the corner next to the Dairy Queen. I couldn't afford the ice cream, but I could I could play a nickel uh, video game. (laughs) Uh, So it wasn't it wasn't discipline. It was necessity. And um, uh, so you know the military. I think it was both. I, I I loved the structure. Uh, I loved the camaraderie. Uh, um, I loved the opportunity to advance and to have a clear, defined system in place that, that I could follow. And I knew if I followed, um, the opportunities would come. And um, so it was, it was a combination. It was um, probably the best thing that ever
1: happened to me was the decision to join the military. Mm-hmm. Wow. And Where was the military experience at yeah I was
0: I, I was stationed all over the world. Mm-hmm. I went to uh Alabama for basic training uh, uh, Fort Benning Georgia for uh, special ops airborne school uh, I was in North Carolina at uh, Fort Bragg for a while and overseas for a few years and in Louisiana and uh, so uh, traveling bunch traveling. of a bunch think- of little places that you know along the way that were really short term deployment things. Yeah. Uh,
1: and what what branch was it? Army. Army. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um just random, but on the subject of people saying thank you for your service, do you think that um some people don't like people ask people saying that to them that that were in the military? There seems to be something weird about that that I don't yeah. know if I understand. So uh,
0: um Do you know what I'm saying? I do know I know I know what you're saying. So there, there are some people who really value their time and their service, and they understand what what a great benefit it was to them. And it's kind of humbling. You know, to me, it's humbling when somebody says thank you for your service. It's humbling to me because I look at where, you know, I look at where I came from, right? And then I realize my ability to go to school. Mm-hmm. Um, to, I've got three degrees, right? My ability to earn all of those degrees. Um, uh, some things like healthcare. Um, you, you know uh, the life lessons and leadership that that was really founded on the principles I learned in the military. So when somebody says to me, "Hey, thank you for your service," I I, I get the intent behind it. Uh, I mean, you can do the math of when I was in the service and look at what's going on in the world, and you know it wasn't the easiest time. It's yeah. uh, by far not the hardest time that people face. And so it's it's kind of hard for me to hear sometimes, honestly, when people say it. I you know I still. I, I don't know how to respond sometimes, yeah. right? It's
1: a weird dynamic because I and yeah. I don't know why, but I sense that too. And yeah. obviously, you know, I I respect the military and people that do it, and I and I feel that way. But for some reason, I feel like they don't want some people don't want me to say that. Yeah, well, there. So the other other part of that is a
0: socio uh, um, uh, kind of a socio demographic um, roller coaster that happened. You know when. Um, Going back, you go let's go back seventy five years right, and you go back to the end of World War One, World War two our veterans were treated as heroes when they came home. Mm-hmm. Korea, the Korean conflict saw us start to see a change to that folks serving in Vietnam they got treated like crap when they came home it It was an atrocity of what we did to that generation, and there's a lot of that generation walking around today mm. and a lot of and and they remember how they were treated the limited opportunities that they had when they came back. And, and so for some of those people, when you say thanks for your service, it's almost a slap in the face because it's like, Hey, I went and served. I, you know, I got shot at every day. Mm -hmm. I did things that, you know, my government, uh, country asked me to do things that no human being should be asked to do. And I gladly went and did it for seemingly no purpose. Um, and you treated me horribly when I came back, why are you thanking me now? Mm. And so, I see that and I recognize it. You know, my generation, it was a different story. Uh, you know, Gulf, uh, the Gulf War was going on. We, uh, Macedonia happened. Uh, Black Hawk Down, uh, you know, uh, uh, became really publicized during that time and the plight of what we were dealing with in different parts of the world. Um, the realization of not only television coverage on the 5 o'clock news, but 24-7 coverage on the internet. And so my generation was really kind of respected. You know, when we uh, we got on a bus, people gave us the preferred seat. And if I flew in uniform, you know, if anybody got bumped to first class, it was me. And if not, we we got treated well. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't this whole... We're starting to see a change in that again. Um, so protracted wars that we've had uh, since uh, 2000, um, since the World Trade Center, you know, uh, since 9-11... Uh, the protracted wars overseas, the difference of impact that it's made on our soldiers, the amount of uh, PTSD that they're dealing with because of what they've been exposed to, and then how that generation is being treated. They're being treated much more like those who served in Vietnam were treated than like those who served during the Persian <coughs> wartime or uh, the first two world wars served. Mm. So I think we've seen this kind of roller coaster. Uh, and it's all, interesting to all think that about plays that. in. Yeah, all that plays into effect. Yeah, it's the so.
1: history and and one of my concepts that I I keep preaching on is like more and more I learn. I, I feel as if there are very few things in life that are black and white, yeah. and everyone tries to make it that way. And there's just shades of gray all over, just like what you're talking about. I mean, yeah, back it up to the history yeah. of this. I mean, there's different generations that feel different ways about it. So there's very rarely is there one exact answer. I'm
0: agree, and and you can look at all the aspects of our you know of our nation and what makes our nation so great, uh, um, and you can see that that gray that intermingles itself between the red and white of our flag, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, you know I'm i'll tell you i'm still proud to say i'm american i love yeah. our country I, I love where we live you
1: should be and uh, i am and, right right, yeah and we are too uh, i mean we feel so blessed and i, I had to bring this up again i know i talked about this last podcast but i did this training the other day with the round rock police officers and yeah. we had to go into a room with a gun and like operate on what we would do and yeah. what i realized that just three experiments is like that is the hardest thing ever and even that for a police officer was still tripping me out it's like there's not a yes or no A or B answer. There is a gray area, and your decisions could put you in jail for life on what you do. I'm yeah. like, this is like the most complicated thing I've ever done. I had no training, obviously, but if more people experienced that, they would probably have a lot less judgment on Monday morning quarterbacking on what happens in certain situations. Yeah, I was just fascinated by this. So... uh I don't talk about it much
0: at all. but uh, So I, w- I went in as a military policeman, a 95-banger, and um, I got to Fort Bragg right after the last plane went to Desert Storm officially. And so I stayed back and tested parachutes. That was my job, was to get up, exercise, work out, eat some breakfast, go to the riggers shed get parachutes and test them and that's what I did. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. what
0: a what a fun job grab on this parachute and see if it works You see how it works by jumping out of an airplane Oh you know? test
1: it like that <laughs> Yeah test it like that like literally go
0: <laughs> I pull you were random Just
1: like looking at them no, that's no, no like doing.
0: randomly you randomly go pull <laughs> random parachutes get with the team and you go test them but um, but during that time, uh, I got pulled into. So I was on the All Army Marksmanship team uh, for shooting uh, 1911s, 45 caliber oh, pistols. Nice. Yeah, I wasn't that good. I was an alternate, but uh, it was still fun. And I've got one gun into 1911. Yeah, the nice guns. And then um, uh, was able to start uh, uh, getting involved with what was called MOUT, Military Operations in Urban Terrain, which is effectively close quarter combat, it's enemy termination, principal extraction. Um, in urban environments and that's became what my specialty was that oh, wow. followed me through my military career and that's that's what i did was what i'm
1: talking about those what situations. you're talking about but wow. in the military the
0: difference was we were in the age then of uh that was in the age of live video mm. and um uh so we were part of what became what we trained was not only how do you make those split second decisions um uh but what does that split second decision now look like on a live feed to the Pentagon? Mm. So if you're in Macedonia and you're you know you're going into uh, a neutral place and you're in a building in the middle of the night and you make that decision, mm-hmm. what does it look like on the live wow. feed? And uh, and how are you going to be judged on that? Which uh, goes back to your other question when you talk about this generation and why people don't know how to respond. Mm-hmm. This generation of American soldiers, in my opinion, mm-hmm. my opinion, um, the guys that have you know have served through uh, through much of Afghanistan, uh, really since the nine eleven, dealing with the the shift to terrorist um, uh, uh, warfare, terroristic warfare, and the elimination of it. These guys are judged differently. I mean, what they do. You know, we've gone from embedded, embedded reporters Mm -hmm. to live stream on, uh, on internet channels where they're watching. That's what they're judged on. And Mm. so it's no longer, it's no longer anecdotal. It's now they don't, there's no way for them to get away from it. And there's no way for their families to get away from, you know, their, their wives
1: see those videos, their kids can find those videos. And it's insane. My perspective of that, that experience was big for me and One of the questions I was asking the police officers, how does this, how does your approach differ from military, Mm -hmm. like going into a room as a cop versus a soldier? Mm -hmm. And they didn't really have a great answer um, because they're obviously, some of them were in the military, but Mm -hmm. they said they think there's a little, it's a little more, I don't know if this is true or not, a little more shoot first in the military than it was as a police officer. Well, you know, so to me, the big difference
0: is philosophical and in the military, Mm -hmm you have a 99% assurance that the people you're going to encounter are bad guys.
1: Right. So that's and
0: and they're not they're not fellow countrymen. Mm. You know, they're they're not people who mm. live in the same community as you. Mm-hmm. They're not people who shop at the same grocery store that you do. They're not potentially the same people whose kids are in your kids baseball team on your kids baseball teams or playing basketball or in cheerleading. Mm-hmm. You know, police officers when they go into the room, it's not just I'm in a disconnected war zone. It's I'm in my community where my family lives and goes to church and has life. And the person that I'm facing is one of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, Man, I I can't imagine. uh, It's complicated. And
1: I just want to be real. Like, this is our show. And, you know, it's it's, like I said, we'll talk about anything, but like, I feel as if if I was in a room when a police officer walks in, say I have a knife in my hand and he says, drop the knife. My mindset is obviously drop the knife right away. Cause I feel if I don't drop the knife when he says that, then I could get shot. That's how I view this. And you, I've seen, I watched a video earlier today, this guy in in New York, he had a knife and they're like, drop the knife, drop the knife. And he said, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And they ended up shooting him. And it's massive backlash, but it's like, Only thing I can know if I was in that situation, I would assume that I would get shot if I didn't drop the knife. Yeah, I don't. uh, I've I've learned enough to not
0: to try not to pass judgment on any particular situation, but also, uh, you know, we've got to be people who are cognizant of the national narrative as well. And there's a reason that there's so much backlash in our country um, over um, over. Law enforcement and in, involved um, uh, deaths or assaults, mm-hmm. uh, and there's there's a reason that that narrative
1: is as loud that's as it good. is. That's the that's the gray, the areas of it's gray, gray that we're talking right? about. And so, uh,
0: you know, it's gray. Uh, you know, I feel for our law enforcement officers because it's a, another layer that's on them of scrutiny, uh, and and what kind of gets lost in that is, I'm you know I'm hard pressed to think any politician runs for public office because they don't really want to make an impact. I, I I still choose to believe that when somebody runs for office, they want to make an impact. Mm-hmm. That when a doctor becomes a doctor, he does he or she does so because they want to practice medicine and heal people, not mm-hmm. because they want to bill, mm-hmm. right? It's not because they want to set up a, a business where they can bill a nickel and dime for every penny that they possibly can. They become doctors because they... They want to heal people, right? Right. Law enforcement, they, they become, I, I believe they become law enforcers, police officers, sheriffs, deputies, constables, uh, troopers, you know, um, because they want to make a difference in their community. I and agree. There's another level of, of scrutiny on top of them. Uh, and that said... I also have no problem acknowledging the fact that we have some systematic problems in our country. Sure. And the manifestation of those happen to become through the most extreme situations. Mm. You know, a lot of that turmoil in our, life, in our country, I believe, is real, but it's only become it's only really coming into mainstream conversation. Uh, unfortunately because there have been so many of these instances like this. Justified, not justified. I'm not making that judgment at yeah, all. I'm just saying that. I agree that, with you. Uh, what I'm saying is uh, I'm not justifying or or, or uh, judging any of, the, any of those situations, but it certainly has brought um, a different light to the conversation.
1: Let me ask you this because I know you have a I like how you view things in your perspective um, and I'm still learning about a lot of this stuff, but do you feel as if some of these things have been brought out more because it was an election year? Is that an actual thing that I've talked to people that are like, this is, you know, because it's an election, this has been brought to light. Is that accurate in some ways or because um, they're real I, issues? I, I agree. But it seems to it seems like that's true from my perspective.
0: You know, I'm, I made a note. On, uh, to myself on November the 2nd and I uh, posted it to my Facebook page as a private note so that I'd get a reminder on November the 2nd next year and I posted in that note to myself what the Dow Jones was at what my personal portfolio was at what the price of gas was um, what I thought the national civility level was and what I thought um, um, the national unity level is and then a couple other factors. Because what I wanted to see to myself, I want to remind myself next year what I'm feeling on the night before the election this year. Mm -hmm. I think that politics uh, has a way of stretching and blurring the lines of what's acceptable and that opportunists choose to use a multitude of things that if they think can further their agenda, they will stretch it out and change it. Mm. I don't know that that's necessarily the politicians as much as it is the the people who work for the politicians who have a job to do, who want to do their job to the best possible
1: outcome, no matter what the cost is. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Got it. Okay, well, let's get back into your career. Yeah, sure. So no, can we talk a, about anything y'all want to. No, I'm good. no it's just kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I like it. Can... I enjoy it. I mean, yeah. this you know it's funny because we talk about this podcast. Like we get to meet people, network. we in a lot of ways we're getting master's degrees every day just talking to yeah, different people. Good for you, yeah. it's really cool. Um, but I guess you know. But part of the pro- the process of this is to to kind of get through um, where you're at to try and pull out little nuggets for people yeah, that sure. would be valuable. Um, so I guess, uh, military, and then I know you had a pretty successful business career. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah, sure. Part I got, of the story. you
0: know, I got out of the military and um, I went to work. Uh, I, I took a job with the local police department as an animal control guy for about a year, and then I um, uh, got a job with a, uh, a for profit company that was selling uh, development resources to churches of all things. Which turned into a great opportunity really quickly because they, um, the owner of that company, was friends with uh, the Bird and the Carruth families out of Dallas. Who, uh, you know, effectively, if you go from downtown Dallas up 75 North, almost all of that is owned by the Birds and the Carruths. They're two of the most powerful companies, uh, families, uh, long-term big in real Dallas.
1: estate families, big everything. Yeah. They're
0: up there with the crows and. Um, you know, they're uh, the Perros, that mm. kind of, uh, but they had a, they, they had a museum um, that they had founded and it was floundering and they had hired my, my boss, his company to come in and take over the management of that and help turn it around, help them make it profitable. It was a nonprofit museum that was just hemorrhaging money and they needed to do something. And I got tagged, you know, at, 20 whatever years 24 years old maybe something like that to be the site manager so here i am you know overseeing a, the daily operations of a 20 million dollar museum with 15 staff members um, uh, and trying to make it financially profitable and we were able to do so in about seven or eight months right and and something stuck about that like you know i, I got a knack for this um
1: and is I that got, rare for a museum to be profitable I never thought about it I, I feel yeah, most, like most, most museums uh, most museums function off
0: from grants and endowments mm-hmm. and um uh, this particular museum did it had grants and endowments but you still want to be at least net neutral right. if not make a little bit of money right mm-hmm. um you've got to be able to build reserves for times like this mm-hmm. um, um you know, that, that's the case for all nonprofits. It's uh, catastrophic what happens in nonprofits when, when the economy changes or shifts, right? Mm-hmm. Because the first thing to go is the uh, disposable income. And most donations to nonprofits are from disposable income. Mm-hmm. That's why churches struggle. That's why the Salvation Army struggles. Um, it's why St. Jude's um, struggles. Uh, and it's also why they save and they plan. And they have big reserves and big investments to help uh, offset operating costs. Mm-hmm. So for me, I figured out, man, I've got a, a knack for this. And I had an opportunity to, to work with another nonprofit and, um, and kind of went out on my own as a, as a 1099 guy. And I worked with a small church out in East Texas and then a school district out in East Texas at the same time. Uh, doing change agency stuff and helping them develop programs and then another one and then another one and then another one and uh, that went on for about a decade and um, and uh, we it actually brought us to move up to north texas from east texas and i met this guy one day in a uh, lobby of a, a church we had a uh, there was a school at this church that I was working with, and I met him in the lobby, and he was a builder, a home builder. At that time, I had a real estate license, too, because I thought, that's ah, an easy way to make money, right? I mean, you just get your license, open up every door, you make 3%, the heavens <laughs> open up, the doves come down, they sing hallelujah. There's no work in real estate at all, right? That was, yeah, tongue in cheek. I mean, that's what I thought about it. Right. And so I got my real estate license, and actually doing really well, and then I met this guy, and he had a... Um, a new custom home company Um, he had invested his life savings in starting it at a long career and building and a great guy and we just hit it off and he had a question he wanted to develop a customer service program and to better take care of he wanted to reinvent the way he took care of customers and build his company based on that and he couldn't get anybody to understand this concept and he shared it with me in about five minutes I just got it and so he hired me to develop a customer service program, which we did. Um, that program won the 2008 National Paysetter Award in the custom home industry. And so he asked me, and he called me over to his office, and he said, listen, you know, what will it take to just hire you to run this program? And I, I gave him a number, uh, and in addition to that number, I also said, you know, I, I want 10 to 15 hours a week of time to do philanthropic work. To, to volunteer for nonprofits and not charge them, I want to be able to go help do strategic planning, help help groups, and not have to charge them any money mm-hmm. um, because they're most of them are in trouble the way they are because they don't have any money. So why go gouge them and make it worse? Mm-hmm. And he agreed to it. And um, uh, you know, fast forward, uh, we took that company that was at uh, at the time he hired me. I think the year before he hired me he did about eight hundred thousand uh, in revenue. Um, uh, when, um, uh, uh, we had merged, started a couple more companies, added some alternative, uh, lines of income into it. Uh, our, our last year together, we did a little over 10 million. Nice. Um, so in just, just under a decade, we grew that much. We added multiple streams of income by identifying some niche markets to be part of and maximizing the, the efficiency around our resource uh, allocations, um, which is critical to, to building, um, uh, to building an industry, right? You've got to, you've got to learn how to create efficiencies around the things that consume resources and effectiveness around the things that generate resources, right? And there's two, two critical paths to business ownership. So we were able to do that. And, um, and then, you know, my wife and I had, um, made some, Uh, some good investments and we had bought uh, we owned some commercial property that we actually owned outright and owned part of an airport and uh, rental properties and big car collection and you know a bunch of stuff and we had life happen and uh, a lot of life happened. And uh, in a short period of time, a lot of life happened. And, and we kind of got to the point where we were like, you know, what does it matter if we make all of the money in the world and somewhere along the way we lose who we are? We're right. not making a difference. We're not really building a legacy. And uh, that, was, that was what propelled me to, to make the change. Um, um, you know, between 2016 and the, uh, the end of 2017, um, our lives, was just turned upside down, mm-hmm. um, and in 2018 we made the decision to to move and transfer out of all of it and transition. And um, in late 2018 took the position here in uh, Williamson County, uh, CEO, yeah, CEO of the, the Williamson County Realtors, and um, which just happens to be the mean that I'm the guy that gets to sit in the back office yeah. and. Uh, work with an amazing team of people Uh, it's you know titles don't mean any difference right the the people we work with are phenomenal that staff up there i've got the some of the best staff in the in the entire world i mean they're uh the way uh they implement our service-oriented culture on a daily basis is Mm -hmm. um it's it's unbelievable man it's cool it's humbling it's cool
1: and it makes me a couple things. what you're talking about, about getting everything and realizing, you know, life's not about that. I I just think about that quote. I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible. Uh, It says like, for what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his soul? Yeah. And that's, that's what I thought of, but it's been for me and Alex, like we grew up here in round rock and the more people we meet um, that are in, you know, positions of leaderships in different roles. Like I just feel like really blessed and like we're in a good place. Like I've, you know, met the mayor, met the chief of police, met you. It's like, these are people that really care about what they're doing. And and I just associate it with Round Rock, but it's, you know, really... It's bigger than that. It's yeah. bigger than that. Um,
2: this episode is brought to you by House Max Funding. HouseMax is one of the fastest growing hard money lenders in America, specializing in loans that provide you the cash needed to fund flips, buying holds, and ground up construction projects. HouseMax gives you the ability to compete with all cash buyers and increase your velocity by closing in seven to 10 business days. If you're looking for cheap, hard money and a relentless originator who will make sure your deal gets funded, call or text Bryce Tennyson today. Bryce is a great friend of ours. He actually funds all of our hard money uh, loans, and uh, he'll get the job done for you. Uh, So make sure you give him a call. Back to the episode.
1: And I love Austin, but it is different than Austin. Like It's totally different. No, we say it's just north of (laughs) weird. Yeah. That's what we say. And and I like Austin, but um, this is just such a good place to be and it's cool to have people like you that, that think mm-hmm. that way, that are in charge of things that matter.
0: Yeah. Um. So like, you know, so it's interesting you mentioned that scripture because that, uh, that is foundation.
2: Is that in yeah, Proverbs I, I, or something? No, it's in.
0: I think it's in the Book of Matthew. Okay. I, I think. Uh, I don't know that for sure. But writing to in the Torah in the Hebrew uh, language, written to the Jewish people, uh, is kind of the you know that aha moment. Uh, for me, um, it was actually in the history in a book called Nehemiah, which you can find in the Old Testament of the Bible in the, in the Jewish Torah. And it's uh, it's an account of them rebuilding the city of Jerusalem,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and they're building the wall. I don't know if you can remember. They're building. I read the story. It's a powerful story of leadership, man. It's an incredible leadership journey, right? When you track, and, and that's what attracts me to it, but. They're under a lot of scrutiny. The walls are caving in on them. The the enemies are rallying around them. Everybody's raising the swords and they're getting ready to attack. And the people are scared, and they're fearful of their lives. And you know all this stuff going on. And Nehemiah goes out walking around and he looks at all the work they've done. And they and he gathers all the men together. Right and um, uh, and here they're at this point in time, you know the. The picture I get in my head is they get one hand, they got a weapon, their sword in one hand, and they've got a mortar in the other. You know, they're, they're bricking at the same time they're protecting, right? And Nehemiah gathers them together, and, uh, uh, and he's talking to him. He says, man, rem- remember, it's chapter 4, verse 14, I think. He said, remember your God, who's so great and mighty, who's brought you this far. Mm-hmm. Go and fight. And but listen, listen to what he says, right? He says, "Go and fight for your, uh, go and fight for your family, for your your wives, your children, your brothers, and your sisters." And he says, "Go fight for your homes."
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, here's what's interesting is, in, when you when you look at the original language on that passage of scripture, the word "homes" isn't like what we think about with home. It's more like what we think about with house or dwelling. You know, here we think about home. Home's where the heart is, right? It's it's not the structure. It's the people. It's the warmth. It's the love. It's what it stands for. It's not what he was saying. He wasn't saying go fight for that. He was saying go fight for that house. Property. Yeah, for that property, for yeah. that house, because that house is the bedrock of who we are. Mm. And you think about that got me on this journey of thinking right about uh when i first read that it was like wow and got me on this journey and so i started studying
1: housing and was a at, cool way to tie all this right in. so
0: i looked at the anthropological aspect of housing and so i went all the way back and i looked at the mayan people right and are the uh the um uh, uh, nomadic people rather and so the nomadic people and they would travel across the plains, planes, planes at, when they would come to a place where they're going to graze for a while, they'd set up their villages in these circles and they would interlock their tents so that it it created like a fan approach on the outside and then on the next ring inside, it was going the other way. And they did that because their homes, their houses, their tents, their dwellings created this level of protection for them from not only... Other nomadic tribes, but from the wild animals and everything that was just ready to devour them, right? The house was this physical level of protection. Mm-hmm. So the Mayan people, uh, if you study the code, you know, the codex are all the paintings on the walls that you see these people When you see that over 75% of the codex, over 75% that have been discovered so far, have to do with the home and family life. Life around the home and what's going on. Think about that. Mm. I mean, what's the American dream, right? Yeah. It's a white picket fence. It's a house with a white picket fence, no cats, um, <laughs> a, a couple of dogs, maybe half a child, right? I mean, that's the American dream, right? Yeah. You know, housing is at the center of every single culture it exists. So mm-hmm. you've got faith, you've got family, and you got houses. Man, what if, if you're not going to spend your entire time fighting for faith or family? What do you? What better thing can you fight for? Can you labor for mm-hmm. than housing and laboring for housing doesn't just mean doing what I'm doing, doing advocacy work or trying to get the right policies in place or the right legislation or the right rules or the right abilities to practice or providing services. It's helping families make decisions about what house is best for them. How can they afford it? Um, can they afford it? What repairs does it need? How are they going to take care of that Does it have things that need to be adjusted so that they can bring other family members in and turn these houses that we're supposed to fight for into the ideological homes that we long for?
1: Mm. Uh, That was good, man. I like that. That That's pretty cool. Good to think about that because you're right. Um, You know, what do they say? The you know, obviously it's in the Declaration about property rights, and um, I what I love about it is. It's just it's something that to me is it can be generational and mm-hmm. like it's something you can build on. It's easy to understand. I think of it in a lot of ways from the investment perspective, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, obviously, want to have my own place as well. Sure. Um, but I just see how real estate can change people's lives. It can, and I I strongly believe that it can change everyone's lives. But some people think it's not for them, and yeah. I think that they don't really realize all the aspects of it and how they can get involved. Well, so there's a, I agree with you. And that's part of the reason we, agree we talk about this so much is like, we want people to get there. So, you know, the question that you have to ask
0: then is why do people not believe housing is for them? Right. And that's where you start really getting into the root of what's going on and how we can structure our lives, our businesses to be profitable, to make money and to help people. Um, there, there are people who don't believe housing is for them because they've seen it evaporate. What do you mean by housing is not for them? So, uh, you know, Matt says that you run into people who don't think it's for them. They think, well, I can never afford to buy a house, or what's the point of buying a house, or I might as well just rent, or hey, let me just live with mom and dad, um, or nobody in my family has ever owned a house, or all I've ever known is renting. Um, and so they've, they've got this kind of mindset that says, "I don't have two hundred and fifty
1: thousand dollars to buy." Yeah, I don't this. have two hundred and
0: fifty thousand dollars to buy this house, or uh, which now is no longer even um, really viable in Williamson County, right? Yeah. And for the most part, which is a, another conversation. I, I don't know how much time we have, but you want to talk about a powerful conversation? I have. That's one to have. Um, so there are these people who 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 bought into that mentality and sometimes i think i believe sometimes that's because they've seen that dream evaporate um maybe there were kids uh when the uh when the bubble burst in 2008 2009 they were part of that foreclosure they were the young kids that parents lost the house and now all of a sudden they're displaced and had no place to go and that was traumatic for them um there's a there's a populace of our country i mean our uh, the history of housing in our country is ugly uh, in relationship to um, people of color, um, um, and and I have to profess I don't know exactly what the right term is to say, uh, but particularly to African Americans, um, particularly
1: I'm, to people of Latino base. Um, I just want to tell you, just because I've uh, we have people on our team, and I've I've talked to people about this and just being real it's like black they're like just say black yeah because i I felt like i'm like always i'm what to say and and Uh, i and i was from people on our team uh nfl football player like i've heard them say that and okay cool yeah uh uh, for the sake of this podcast i'm cool with that i actually
0: like to call them carrie or john or or don or um, whatever their name is and um I, i hate it but the reality is is that and you're talking about, like, redlining and... Yeah, I mean, oh my gosh, I man. If you study that, if you look at that, if you look at the... It's not... And it, by the way, it wasn't just redlining, it wasn't just blockbusting. But those two in themselves would have been atro- atrocious. If you look at the mapping and the policies of our federal government, particularly in um, relation to backing of loans, you know, we had a long period of time in our country where you could not get a government back loan, nor could a developer get a government back loan for putting in housing developments or for buying a house unless it was deed restricted that prohibited black people from living in them or purchasing the houses, mm-hmm. uh, purchasing or leasing. I mean, that was the governmental policy, and and that reigned true, even though the Supreme Court ruled on it in the you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, that still was the practice. There was a systematic racism. And so um, I am not somebody who's benefited from directly. I can't go look and say, okay, I, I've generationally benefited from the ability of housing. I mean, heck, I was homeless. My parents didn't have a house, right? But then I thought about the first house that I bought. And, and I got a gift for the first house I was bought to help me with the down payment. It was, it was like $1,000. I mean, it wasn't a lot of money. But my grandmother had given me like a $1,000. And I think about where she got that from. Where she got that $1,000 from? She had sold her lake house in in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Um, and uh, her and her husband had two houses. My grandfather had two houses. They, they were able to sell that one home up there and put all the money in the bank. So that $1,000 she got came to me because... So I benefited, right? Mm-hmm. She she had that money because they were able to sell an investment property that they were able to buy and build wealth in. Mm-hmm. They were able to buy that house, mm-hmm. their second house, because their first house was given to them, I, I believe, if I understand it correctly, it was an inheritance. So they had mm-hmm. inherited a house, mm-hmm. so they didn't have a house payment so they could afford to buy a second house, mm-hmm. right? You see how that works? Yeah. Generationally, um, for uh, for a 100 in 50 plus years, Mm -hmm. that was not the case for a good portion of the populace of America, for American citizens. They could not do that. And it it was not just black people. It happened to other, it happened to people based on ethnicities Mm -hmm. through different areas. But the people in my study that seemed to be most disproportionately affected was the black populace. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I think one of the questions all of us have to ask ourselves mm-hmm. is uh, and and be willing to actually ask ourselves the question is what does fair and affordable housing actually look like mm. where we live? What's the solution to some of that? How do we help create some um, equitable um, uh, distribution, uh, not redistribution, but right? But how do we how do we create systems and processes to um, help people who have been affected that way realize what we all long for, realize what the Mayans long for, realize what the, uh, the, the nomadic people long for? How do we help them realize that dream and not, uh, you know, uh, die under the weight of, of that thought, housing's not for me?
2: Mm. Do you wanna That's good, d- man. Do you want to dive into the uh, Wilco... Uh, home prices like you were talking about? Yeah, we can. Sure. Because um, I was actually talking to our team about um, the average sales price in Austin MLS for um, single family homes uh, recently. And I, I guess I don't know who released this. Maybe it was ABOR or somebody. But an agent sent this to me. And in October, and it's just completely off the charts in 2020. And I'm yeah. sure it's the same thing in uh, in Wilco statistics as well. But... Um, in October, the median or the average sales price was four seventy. Mm-hmm. In Austin, uh, I don't know where all this is coming from. All I have is the graph, and it says Austin MLS single family home five year trend analysis through October twenty twenty. Okay, um, but it's a straight line up. At the start of the year in January, mm-hmm. it was uh, three seventy, and then it was four seventy in October, but it typically these years you know follow some sort of a similar trend line mm-hmm. uh, and each year maybe they get a little bit higher maybe in terms of sales price um, but in uh, 2020 it is just completely off of the trend lines mm-hmm. absolutely yes um, in terms of total listings down low uh, sales price up high um, average uh, let's see number of home sales uh Started the year at the start of the pandemic, it was lower, but mm-hmm. it shot all the way up and, and stayed higher, comparatively speaking, to the previous four years. Mm-hmm. And so I'm um, curious to hear what you wanted to, to yeah. talk about with it. So uh, first thing I would say is that either this
0: afternoon or Monday, I'm going to publish the latest version of uh, statistics for Williamson County. <clears throat> and I use a, um, we have a partnership with the uh, Real Estate Center of Texas AM and that compiles that data for us. Uh, so it's the most accurate data because it takes data not only from one MLS, but from uh, all of them. You know, there's five MLSs that overlap Williamson County. Mm-hmm. And so it takes data from all of those MLSs. It takes some private uh, off-market stuff. It's got impact uh, or data-driven from new home construction as well, so it's really accurate data. I'll release that this afternoon or tomorrow as a precursor or uh, precursor to it. Um, uh, we are seeing um, some alarming numbers. So historically in Williamson County, and I may be a little bit off, but historically in Williamson County, like last ten years uh, through two thousand, early two thousand nineteen. We grew at about uh, 3.3% annually on the sales price of a home. Mm-hmm. So um, you could go to any community. Um, so Williamson County has you know, just under 600,000 people in it. 187,000, 190,000 of them live in population pockets of less than 15,000, so what are considered rural. Uh, and the rest of them live in populated areas, areas where the population is more than 15,000. You could go... It didn't matter whether you went to the non-populated areas or to the populated centers. It was right around that uh, 3.3% growth rate pretty consecutively. Some years would get up to four, some years it dropped down to two and a half. But it was right in that 3.3% rate. 2019, we started seeing that rise and we started seeing inventory uh, slowing down. Prior to the pandemic... Um, which, by the way, it has to go without. It can't go without saying that a large part of the growth um, in the home market and the price is because there's so much new construction happening in Williamson County. It's disproportionate amount of new construction in Williamson County uh, versus other parts of the country. In fact, I think I think we're the second fastest growing county in the country uh, in this regard. Right. Mm-hmm. Just prior to the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020, we started seeing some administrative activities from Washington that were really starting to affect the way builders in Williamson County were approaching the future. Um, we started, uh, started hearing about tariffs. Uh, we started seeing new trade deals being cut, and those things were affecting um, items of production Um, so what most people don't know is even though the house is built right here, almost everything that goes into a house today comes from overseas somewhere. Lumber comes from uh, Argentina, Venezuela, Colombia, and then comes from Canada. Um, uh, Faucets and light fixtures come from China. Um, uh, Roofing shingles are petroleum-based products, all the paints and stuff like that. They're all petroleum-based products, and the base of that petroleum comes from offshore it's not u.s generated right and so all these tariffs all the the trade the new trade deals while they've been good for the country as a whole and helping drive the economy up it's also hurt some industries and so we were seeing builders starting to struggle with that in late 2019 early 2020 and then when the pandemic hit we shut down import export particularly from china um, that really created a problem, You're having lags and closing properties because you know, a spec builder is not going to close a property if it's missing a light
2: mm-hmm.
0: or missing an oven. Um, they're just That's <clears> not <throat> their business model. That's not a custom home. It's not what they're going to do. Uh, they're not going to switch the light fixtures out. Once it's specced, it's specced, and that's what they based their price on, and that's how they stay profitable. I don't blame them. Right? That's what they have to do. But it started delaying that building process, started extending the building process, then you had to shut down uh, model homes. Um, You had to stop sales meetings. Uh, We had some builders that the inflationary rate is going up so fast that they have actually now stopped taking new builds um, because they're uh, on order, because they're losing money right what you
2: buy today or plan on ordering for today is going to change right so what
0: they're doing is switching to a model where they're building more speculative homes because they can wait to price that speculative home uh until 30 days before it's finished and know that they'll have five or six or seven contracts the day that it's ready um we've seen the uh, the lot takedown schedule slow Um, we have a lot of builders now that are doing lottery systems on lots where um, they say, you know, one out of every 10 lots, only one out of every 10 lots is available for investors. Mm-hmm. So if you're an investor looking to buy a new construction home, you got to get in line and hope you're one of the 50 people who draw that one
1: lot to buy that one house. Um, why, why is that? Why, like, why, why do they care if it's an investor or a homeowner? Um,
0: uh, I'm going to give you an empirical answer, not a scientific answer. Yeah. Um, empirically, because they know if they're selling to investors, the neighborhood is going to deteriorate faster than if they're selling to people who have a vested interest in the property. Okay, makes sense. And um, and so when people are coming to build a new home, particularly at the price range, that we're I mean, you know, you talk about entry level house now, three hundred thousand dollars, you know, three hundred nine thousand dollars in Cedar Park. Um, is the Midpoint House, for example. Uh, uh, It's 314, I think, countywide. No, 314 in Cedar Park, 309 in countywide. You know, that's that's still a big chunk of change. Sure. Right? Um, I don't have that much in my pocket right now.
2: Cedar Park's really uh, made some positive changes over the last few years and just in terms of real estate and and everything they're doing it, it has it's no for, round rock
0: yeah it's a, it has from a price range right from, from a price point well, round rock has kept pace too mm-hmm. you know uh but my i go back to my question if if all you know so there's a there's this dichotomy that happens right uh, i'm sorry let me answer your question alex that's what's driving the increase in home prices uh, and that's not going to stop. We're actually doing, Monday we're doing a uh, a builder panel, uh, so all of our members can join in on that on a Zoom, um, where we have we have three representatives from new home construction and three people who do a lot of new home sales. Do join. you know what time that is? Uh, it's at uh, 12 o'clock noon. It's a lunch and learn. Um, we uh, should we'll be by get Zoom. our team to join. Yeah, you yeah, welcome to. Um, and I think we're going to tape it, too, and we'll have it available for our members. They can download it off the website. Cool. Um, uh, we 're going to talk about exactly this, uh, what 's driving it. Um, they New home construction is constricted by inflationary causes, um, and that 's going to slow how much new product they put on the ground. I go back to the second question, um, which is what are we going to do about the affordability factor of that because if because everybody who you know I like a good cup of coffee and a nice meal, right. Uh, I have suits that I get dry cleaned on a regular ongoing basis. A dog needs to be groomed. Uh, I need to go to the pharmacy. I like to get food from the grocery store. You know, uh, I, I enjoy going to the big box in the little hardware store to buy trinkets to do projects with here and there. Um, I need to have my lawn mowed. If the price, uh, price of housing as a whole continues to go up as fast as it is, mm-hmm. Where's the labor pool that we re, that that is part of our society, right? That is a part of who we are as a community. Mm-hmm. Um, where are those entry level jobs? Where are they going to live to be able to come here to do those entry level jobs? You know, we've got a phenomenal like Williamson County, right? We have a phenomenal healthcare system in Williamson County. That's hard to argue, right? But the healthcare system isn't just made up of doctors. Uh, mm-hmm. Making six and seven figure salaries. It's made up of a whole bunch of RNs, uh, you know, making high nineties, low hundreds. It's made up of a whole bunch of LVNs making thirty, forty. Uh, they can't live here.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, teachers are having a hard time retiring uh, here because they can't keep up with the inflationary cost of the homes that they've lived in for twenty, thirty years. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was I was talking to one of our local teachers. Um, not long ago, who had this question for me? He's like, "What can you know? What can y'all do to help with this? Because here I am. I've retired. I've worked for uh, a particular local school district my entire career. I've invested. I've retired at the maximum. Uh, invested at the maximum rate I can, and I won't be able to afford to live and pay my taxes, and not have to work another job when I retire. I won't be able to stay here and live in the community with the kids that I've raised and I've helped grow." and we've got to answer that question.
1: How do you, I mean I know I'm not expecting you to know the answer but I'm freshly thinking about this. Yeah. How do you solve stuff like this? I mean I understand that there's programs where government, you know, city municipalities, mm-hmm. you know, allocate certain areas for that to keep yeah. costs down, but moving forward like I mean I'm sure cost would, of land's expensive, the cost to build, taxes, like how mm-hmm. do you create something where it's Affordable for somebody
0: Yeah I think that uh um, there's a multitude of answers to that, and uh, I wish I had the one, you know, the one golden ticket uh, that we could pull at Willy Wonka
2: and have uh, no, <laughs> yeah. chocolate all day, right? I don't. But Do I, you have a good example of another city that has, because obviously Round Rock. Like Mew- I know like
1: Mueller, at you know, in Austin, they have affordable units in certain mm-hmm. parts, stuff so, like that. So, yeah, there
0: are places around the country <clears throat> that are doing things, right? Uh, I can give you an example of local one. So uh, here's here's a couple of solutions. Here's here's what I think are a few solutions to the problem. One, I think um, I think understanding opportunity zones. Uh, Senator Tim Scott uh, championed the cause for opportunity zones, right? Understanding opportunity zones. By the way, if you're in the real estate industry and you're investing, you want to build wealth. Here's the way to do it. Yeah. Get involved in in communities that have opportunity zones available. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you do that you're what you're the the just behind the opportunity zone is that you're making a long-term commitment to your community because you realize most of the um, most of the profitable aspect of that 7 8 10 years into the project not in the first couple of years Um, And that helps to create wages. That helps people to, uh, opportunity zones, create the ability to to make commerce in a community. It creates the ability to bring a workforce in, which gives opportunity to build housing that they can afford. Because most of those in areas that have regressed in value, not uh, not appreciated in value, right? Yeah. So that's one answer. I guess
1: it's hard. And I'm always thinking hyper-local. Like, even here... That's a
0: hyperlocal solution.
1: Well, no, but I'm saying, like, I know there's opportunity zones here, but even those areas are still booming in a lot of ways. Well, they are. Um, and so that's a
0: part of the solution. I, I think another part of the solution is, um, uh, which, by the way, I am not a big government guy. Yeah, uh, I think, our, I, I kind of believe our government exists to provide for the safety and well-being of the population, mm-hmm. right, uh, to protect us. Um, and to take care of the least among us, mm-hmm. uh, where we fail as a society to take care of the least among us. Mm-hmm. So I think one of those areas um, that we really need to look at is uh, is the reach that housing authorities have. Um, I don't know how much you know about housing authorities and their reach that they have with uh, rent augmentation and things like that. But right now, the waiting list for Section 8 housing uh, for housing vouchers is is far exceeds... Yeah. The funds that they have, and those funds are all set up based on an MSA regionalized rent pool. Mm-hmm. I think that as a simple solution to part of the problem is to change the way that the vouchers are done, and stop making them based on an MSA's uh, regional rent pool, right? What the rent will cost, and start making it based on neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So if I have a you know a neighborhood in uh, you know in South Austin. Uh, and I can rent an apartment there for eight hundred bucks a month, and then, uh, and get a voucher for eight hundred bucks a month. Well, eight hundred dollars a month isn't going to get you anything in Williamson County, right? Right, you you can't even get walk a dog across the street for eight hundred dollars a month, right? I mean, you can't. Yeah, you can't. So why not make it regionalized? Why not say seven eight six six four? That voucher is going to be thirteen hundred dollars a month. It's That's currently cool. per per MSA. Yeah, if I understand it correctly, though they're they're much more whether it's per msa or it's per county it's a much more um regionalized approach and i think we need to get micro on that that's a cool and, idea and i think that that can by the way i think that works hand in hand with opportunity zones right i think that's a way that the government can uh can work with private sector in opportunity zones i think uh, that's a great
1: idea yeah. all
2: right guys let's talk about today's sponsor. Glenn LeBlanc and Supreme Lending have been serving the Austin market for 20-plus years. They are a local lender with in-house underwriting, so you're kept in the loop every step of the way. Whether you're doing a cash-out for home repairs or a first-time home buyer, Glenn makes the lending process smooth and easy to navigate. Always available and able to educate buyers along the way. Choose a local lender when buying your next home. Call 512 672 9472 anytime. And if you say you heard this ad on our podcast, Glenn will refund your appraisal if you use him. Definitely reach out to Glenn. Glenn is a personal friend of ours. The link to his website is in the description below. Now back to the episode.
1: So, in my senior year of college, I wrote a 30 page paper on FHA. Oh, wow. And so okay. I kind of went through it. But help me understand where um, I may have a flaw in my thinking because I agree I'm less government too like I I love the concept of no zoning in a lot of ways I I get how it's important but my house for an example I have an RV behind my house I'm renting it out Airbnb $40 a night that's super affordable we're like let's go put another one in but we're not allowed to. Mm-hmm. And so my mind is like, you should allow people to utilize their properties more if you want to. No,
0: I absolutely agree with that. Because
1: I'm giving affordable housing right there, but I'm prevented from doing that by the government. Yeah, by the government or by the an HOA, right? No HOA in yeah, this but, case, but yes. But it's
0: usually one of the two. And so there are a lot of municipalities <clears throat> around the country who have seen that and have effectively said, you know, that Airbnb or that... Uh, um, urban dwelling increase the size of lot per family uh, can change there's there's real problems with that uh particularly in all those develop in developed areas uh you know you talk about neighborhoods that are in developed areas that don't have hoa most of those are older neighborhoods um let's just be real about that most neighborhoods have an hoa of some sort now mm-hmm. if they've been built in the last 20 30 years mm-hmm. um so when a neighborhood's developed it's developed based on engineering factors for example let's calculate so got a single family home they're going to have uh, you're going to have two toilets that flush you know 20 times a day whatever I don't I don't know what the numbers are I'm not an engineer right, right but right. that that puts so much demand that lot that parcel puts this much demand So I need a six-inch sewer line or an eight-inch sewer line or a six-inch water line or an eight-inch water line. Well, you take that same single-family house and you turn it into a fourplex, and now you've got four times the demand on the system. The the system's infrastructure that's in place won't support it. This is one of the big reasons that cities... take these approaches is because they understand the infrastructure won't support it. The, the wiring coming into a house under the fuse box is insufficient. Um, the, uh, the water delivery for, uh, for fire suppression is insufficient. Mm-hmm. The road, um, you know, the roads are designed you look at a, when engineers do roads for development, they look and say, okay, how many in and out roads are there going to be? Mm-hmm. And how many houses are there going to be that Uh, connect to those in and out roads and that's what determines how wide our roads need to be how much parking there is what kind of sidewalks we have well if you take that and you take a single family home and make it into a fourplex or a single family home and put three travel trailers behind it right now you've you've dramatically
2: changed the infrastructure demand that makes a a lot of sense and uh never really think about it you know all the way down at the you know, macro level, My, micro very, level. Yeah. yeah. Micro, micro level.
0: Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I'm an advocate of, we should be able to do what we want with our properties too, but responsible property ownership also recognizes the limitations of the community. Mm-hmm. And that's one of, I mean, you know, uh, listen, I, will I'll get, uh, uh, somebody will hear this and they'll get upset that I'm about to say this. But you know, that's, a big, what, that's a what a good podcast the, is yeah, about. a big part of the, a big part. Uh, well, here is controversy. A big, part <laughs> of this, a big part of the solution to the problem is we have to get off the me, me, me mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, we're fine with affordable housing as long as it's not next to me. Mm-hmm. We're we're fine with uh, with new apartments going in fourplexes as long as it's not in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We're okay with. Um, with uh, diversification as long as I don't have to live in it Mm. you know we uh, we're okay with uh, you know we're okay with the price of houses going up um, as long as it's my house that's going up in value and I'm making money off of it
2: as long as I'm not having to buy yeah
0: right and so so, you know, again, I'm a capitalist, right? I I believe in making money. I like making money. I enjoy making money. Uh, I, I like watching the money, what little resources I have go out and make more money and come back into me. But uh, Karen and I, we've adopted a mentality that says those who are entrusted with a lot are going to be held accountable for what they do with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we think that You know, we have to, as for me and my family, Mm -hmm. I know we have to look at things a little bit less me Mm -hmm. and more what's our community need. And Mm -hmm. at the end, because at the end of the day, you think about it, right? At the end of the day, we're depriving ourselves of some tremendous opportunities. When we say we don't want people that look like, don't look like us to live in our neighborhoods, what we're effectively saying is I don't want to be exposed to a different culture. I don't want to learn about a different heritage and a background. Um, and we're denying ourselves and we deny our children that opportunity, our children, that opportunity, right? When I get it. Yeah. And, and so, you know, are we gaining a lot of money? We wealth, probably. Is it, is it, is that the ultimate goal is just to make money?
1: Not for me. I hear you. One, one of the me. things that I am most proud of with our uh, businesses is our real estate brokerage is very diverse. Yeah. We have all different types of people. And it's, it's really what makes us similar is our mindsets. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. And it's pretty cool because I agree. Good. You know, that's 100%. I mean, that's not how I view it, but I hear you completely.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a ma- it's a
0: macro problem. It's a narrative issue. Um, and I've long said you want to change anything in the world. All you have to do is change the economics and the language, <clears throat> and you can change anything. If you mm. change the resources and the language, you can make any change you want to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to be willing to do it
1: complex issues man complex, i like it man i like it yeah. back to the you know there's not always one answer but there's it's not important always to one answer talk through it think about it you know you're planting seeds in my head i i want to you know one day get involved on a political level and it's good yeah. to have different perspectives and yeah i've got a,
0: a friend up in um, the dallas area uh, uh uh john crutchfield dr john crutchfield and he's um uh, I met him of all places at an airport in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. I was there for some building thing. And he was, I don't know, you know what he was there for. And we just struck up a conversation in the airport and we've become friends since then. And, um, uh, he's, I mean, he's, uh, uh, he's a, a, a black guy, um, phenomenal business mind, uh, professor at a university, I think in Mississippi. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm watching him do stuff with his life right now to make a difference. And so he's like, he's invested in a lot of real estate, um, rental properties and real estate in uh, Mississippi, doing a lot of redevelopment work in inner city Mississippi uh, towns. Um, he's bringing investors from around the country into pools of people to invest in these towns so he can make a difference. And now he's starting to work with taking um, homeless veterans um uh, mental health issues, and and using the some of the profits of the investment pool, uh, uh, to 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 return an investment to the investors, and some of it to help the community on a greater level. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a, I look at guys like that, and I stand in awe. I mean, I admire what they're doing because those are that's examples of people who say, you know, yeah, we're going to make a living, and we're going to make good money, but. Uh, and we're going to help people, but we're going to do something to give back to our community. We're going to understand that this, there's issues here that the government can't solve on its own, nor should the government solve. It's, it's our responsibility to reach out to our communities. And I love that you say that. Our, and so right here where we were.
1: I feel like a lot of things uh, that people complain about or have very strong opinions on, they're not actually doing a lot in reality on that. And I, I, I really strongly believe that. It's like you, a lot of people just talking, but what are you doing on an everyday active basis to actually fight this other than complaining?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, We, we can all make massive difference one step at a time, right? Yeah. So I, I hear you. And um, I guess one thing that people always feel like they got to get to a point where you're making money to To start doing that, and I don't yeah, think that's true. That's not true at all. Yeah.
0: I, I mean, I don't have that much, man. But I can tell you, when I had nothing, I was still trying to do stuff and stuff to help people. You and, know, uh,
2: you can go give your time. Yeah,
0: you can. You know, when I, uh, my best friend in the world's name's Britt Cumby, uh, his parents Terry and Diana. I met them uh, met right before our freshman year in high school. Right, they lived in a, a two bedroom, one bath house in not the best part of town in Garland, Texas, right? Um, uh, raising their boys, and uh, and they just kind of adopted me. It Was one of the couches I surfed on a lot, or I stayed. Is uh, and his parents invested in me, you know. Uh, whenever I'd go over there, they had had a meal for me. When when Diana would go shopping and buy brick clothes, she'd would, she'd would oftentimes buy me clothes. That's cool. Yeah, it's that kind of people. They didn't have they didn't have that much. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't have they didn't have bass boats they didn't have airplanes they didn't have motorcycles they didn't have they didn't have three cars they didn't have a big house um but they they took what they had and they invested it back into people and mm-hmm. they put a little bit aside for themselves and they put a little bit aside for people and uh, and they ended up retiring really well really well um not you know not big high paying jobs they're were, they're were blue collar uh, blue collar workers right um, I think I think Terry worked in a a warehouse at Texas Instruments and um, uh, Diana worked in a in the pharmacy I remember at Kroger's or something like that um, you know so they're blue collar folks but. They didn't wait until they had millions of dollars to take care of people. Mm-hmm. They just reached out to their community and looked for the need that they could help, and and that's who they helped. You know, got to everyone yeah. do their parts. I mean, everybody right, everybody do. You know, it, how 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 hard is it? I mean, if we can if we can buy the next person in line Starbucks and pass it forward, right? Uh, how hard is it to to. Take that same money and, and do something to help somebody with a house, or do something to help somebody pay an electric bill, or mm. uh, or work together with ten other people who are willing to do it and pool some money and say, hey, we'll make a difference here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I and I don't say this to give us credit, but I think it's just it's a point. Um, our main marketing guy's been out; his wife's very very sick, mm. and we pay him a good salary, and we've been paying him for the last two and a half months. He's not working for us. Yeah. And the reason I say that is, like, that's not even for me. Like, I feel like I'm doing good. It's something that I feel that I, we have to do. Yeah. And if you, you know, we're taking that personal responsibility. Like, this is the right thing to do. It is. And if you can approach life that way, things listen, work out.
0: Uh, in in uh, 17, I got sick. Like, I was, you know, diagnosed six months to live kind of sick, right? And um, they had misdiagnosed me, by the way, but I was still sick. It was life changing, not life ending, but it' still make you think and uh, man, I tell you uh, part of the reason I love realtors so much is during that time it was realtors you know when the casserole dinners stopped coming from church and uh, our family was like, yeah, you know not, you know whatever. Uh, it was the people in the real estate world who were reaching out to me, reaching out to my family, they're helping me take care of business without taking any money from it, you know, they're closing trans- going to closings closing transactions. Um, you know, because I, I, I couldn't walk to the mailbox. Uh, mm-hmm. I was I was only awake an hour a day for you know for a little while, and um, you know that that those I'm I'll never forget. That's why I do what I. It's part of the reason I do what I do now is because it was people, realtors, people in the real property industry that said, you know, I can do without this to help another yeah. human being, and uh, that's the kind of stuff that. Tells who yeah. we really are, right?
1: Yeah, we have, yeah. you know, 50, we've probably had fifty podcasts, and most of them are real estate related in yeah. some way, and just a lot of great people doing a lot of cool things, and. There's a lot of people that um, have come from nothing, and that this has provided a, a whole new world for them, and it's really yeah. special to see that. It is for me. I mean, real the real property industry has been good to my
0: family. Mm-hmm. I mean, make no doubt about it. And uh, you can't do it just by selling real estate. And we were diversified mm-hmm. in what we were doing. Um, we had, we didn't have all of our eggs in one basket. But it's been it's been pretty good. And us. it's a
1: long game, right? It's it is it's a long a game, not a get rich quick.
0: No, God, no, man. You yeah. know. Uh, uh, I'm fortunate um, that I had enough business experience coming into real estate to be able to run a real estate business. Mm-hmm. It's not easy; it's work, um, but it's worth it, yeah. uh, and and it can be good for those people who want to labor. Right. You know, I, I think it's when you talk about things that keep you up at night. One of the things that keeps me up at night is, you know, the next time we have a big market crash like we did in 2008, which we will have you know, how many of my agents aren't going to make it through that? You know, how many, uh, how many of the people we, that we have, we have, uh, you know, we have 2,100, uh, agents here in Williamson County. Uh, last year we, uh, we served just over 5,200 people in the last 12 months that we helped somehow in the real estate, whether it's a class or MLS or something like, you know, um, uh, we've got thirty, I mean, thirty five hundred different subscriptions through our service. So it's not a little entity. It's not huge, right? It's not the biggest in the in the nation, but it's not small. Right. And and I recognize that you know that five thousand people, man, that rep- that represents five thousand small businesses. Mm-hmm. And what's going to happen to those people if they haven't learned what it truly takes to be successful? And
2: mm-hmm. you're right. And haven't learned the discipline of it.
1: Uh, we talk about that frequently. That's a big reason why we do a lot of this is, is we're it? trying to give value out because i we preach to our agents. Hey, make money on every aspect. Be investing. You know, mm-hmm. if someone's out there closing five deals in a month, I'm saying, hey, you know, make sure you're putting that money to good use. Yeah. Yeah, put some away, do something good with it, and spend the rest on uh, on investing back into business. Right How are you
2: getting better? You know, what are you doing to to find more leads? Are you relying on someone providing you leads, or you go out and drumming up your own yeah. business? Are you getting referrals? Are you you know constantly growing and learning? And you're right. I mean, we yeah. have a lot of people come on this podcast and say the same exact thing that you did. Is everything's great right now, but as soon as it it turns the other way. A lot. Uh, there are what fifteen thousand something uh, agents, agents in Austin. I Think so. Yeah, like that. I mean close to that. Yeah, there's uh, and like, you know, how many are going to uh, you know be around when things get really rough? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting dynamic. And man, I tell them it's uh, if you want to be successful for the long game. So here's where we stop short. This, this is, you're going to talk about business, right? Here's where we stop short. Everybody's thinking about how do I get the next transaction, right? And was like, how do I get that? That's what we're, that's what we kind of approach real estate doing is thinking about how do we get the next transaction? Mm-hmm. I think that's the fallacy. I think that's why so many real estate agents fail. I think that's why 30, about 32% of licensees in Texas transition every year. Right. So, the, uh, uh, because we're only thinking about the next transaction, what we need to be thinking about is a different question. And that question is how do we do the next transformation? Mm. So, if we approach business by trying to transform people and transform their lives as opposed to just getting a transaction done, mm-hmm. if we'll do that, then we can build for the long game. Right. And so, because transformation says i care about you right and transformation doesn't stop when the transaction's over uh, transformation is something that continues on you know so you don't you're not always looking for the next lead you're also taking care of the people you've already served and that's where my estimation what i watch the greatest majority of real estate agents fail at they get the deal done and then they they don't they never follow back up with that person they don't stay in touch and it's just become a transaction Uh, Being transformational is easy. It's a a product of doing three things and three things only. And if if real estate agents will do those three things, they will be unbelievably successful for the long haul.
2: I agree completely. I've got us with the three
0: things. Yeah. So uh, number one, you have to be intentional. Okay. Right. You have to intentionally choose what you're going to do. If you're going to be a remodeler, um, then be a remodeler. If that's what you only want to do. If you're going to be a remodeler and a real estate agent, then do that. Mm-hmm. But make sure you're working intentionally mm-hmm. the, same, the same pool, right? Mm-hmm. You're looking for the same people. If you're going to sell new, uh, help people buy new homes, and you're going to list existing properties, and you're going to remodel, and you're going to build, and you're going to have flips, and you're going to have rentals, and you're going to tap in a lot of different income streams, which I encourage you to do figure out the way intentionally that you can bring those all together, mm-hmm. right? So you intentionally make this decision to say, this is what I'm going to do. This is my strategic plan. I'm going to intentionally do these things. Mm-hmm. Secondly, you have to be consistent. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to just decide I'm going to do those. Weight loss doesn't end on January 31st, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? We mm-hmm. can't pledge to say, hey, I'm going to lose weight next year and stop working out on January 20th and think you're going to lose 20 pounds. Mm-hmm. It's a product of being consistent. So whatever it is you decide you do, mm-hmm. you have to be consistent about doing it. The person that I know in real estate that's, that I personally, the most successful person I know, is going to do $400 million a year, has a huge team. His team's big enough now that he has a CEO that runs his little team for him, right? I mean, it's that much. He'll He'll tell you every day, every day. He gets up, and from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock, he makes telephone calls. Mm-hmm. You know why he makes telephone calls? Mm-hmm. Because it's what he's good at, and he knows if he consistently makes telephone calls, mm-hmm. he can continue to stay in touch with those people and help them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to be consistent about whatever you're intentional on. And third, you have to invest. You've got to invest in people, and you've got to invest in yourself. Mm-hmm. And you have to determine that the, the competition for the alternative use of your resources is incredibly high. Mm-hmm. And you've got to choose where you're going to invest your resource of time, your resource of money, uh, your resource of skill set, uh, your resource of intelligence, your resource of empathy. Mm-hmm. You've got to choose where you're going to invest those. And you've got to invest that in people, right? You've got to reach out and do that. And if, man, if real estate agents would do just those three things, mm-hmm. practice transformational leadership, which is really what it is, unbelievably successful i mean that's what we did in our companies um we 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 were really intentional about what we did we got consistent and tapped into a specific market and we built everything off of that market everything that's awesome um, and uh and that's still the case my you know my uh, guy was my partner still doing it today and still work i talked to him yesterday uh still knocking it out of the park
1: well that's great Sorry, stuff yeah, man. Anyway. um i think that's really valuable and I think we should definitely do another episode because we could keep going. We all we got could, stuff yeah. to do today. I um, see your phone blowing up. <laughs> mine in my pocket over here. Has we been Really going appreciate off, you yeah. coming on. No, I
0: appreciate yeah. the invite. Yeah, you know, uh, anything we can do for our members, we're glad to. We're uh, we're uh, proud to have your company as members at our association, mm-hmm. and uh, I know we serve several of your agents and Absolutely. hope to serve more in the future and. Um, you know, uh, look forward to partnering. We, we love our brokers and our agents, and that's what we're here for. We're here Thank to you. bring value to
2: you. Thank
1: so. you. Well, guys, if you have any comments or questions, uh, hit us up. Brian, thanks again. No, you're welcome. Thank you very much. What are ways uh, people might be able to, to reach out or get a hold of you? Yeah. You know
0: what? People can call me. I, I tell them the easiest way is to call me or text me. My personal cell phone number is 940-206-9372. Um, uh, I have an open door policy so anybody who uh, anybody can call, text and we can figure out the when and the where to have a cup of coffee or sip a glass of whiskey and there you um, go. I'll I'll give people time. Get some uh,
1: knowledge. You got some knowledge. I don't know if
0: I have any. I don't know that I do. Man, <laughs> you I don't, do. I don't you think do. that. I just yeah. You know, I I care about what I do, and I care about real property and yeah. um, in this industry. Um, they can uh, they can call the association Williamson County, or visit us at uh, wcrealtors.org, of course. But yeah. easiest way to get me is just call me on my cell phone.
1: Call Brian. Hit us up if you need a connection. Happy to introduce. Yeah, Thanks absolutely. again, Brian. No, Appreciate thank it. you, Brian. Thank it's you.